Lord, I just pray, God, that you would... Um, Lord, I pray that the words that I share, Lord, would be your words, Lord, and not mine. And that, Lord, you just be glorified, Lord, in and through this time. And that, Lord, you would, uh, you would definitely be honored, Father, uh, through this. So, Lord, we love you, God. We pray that you would go before us now and that you would uh, continue, Lord, to give us a heart, Lord, for you. And so, Lord, uh, we are just grateful, Lord, again, Lord, for this time, Lord, continue to give us your heart and your voice. And, Lord, we... Um, we uh, just ask these things now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's jump right into Revelation chapter 15. And uh, it says here, it says this, it says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Um, again, uh, I think just to, to reemphasize What's going on here, in case anybody is confused, when we look at uh, the book of Revelation and we begin to see or we have the, a discussion concerning God's action towards the world, this is now God's wrath towards the world. This is God judging the world. And so um, I hear a lot of input. There's a lot of back and forth that I hear on a regular basis concerning, um, you know, oh, whether or not we're going to be here on the, on the earth, um, whether or not we're going to be left behind. And there seems to be this large debate that goes back and forth between people concerning whether or not we're going to be left on this earth. And I think the answer to this is a very obvious one. It's not even something that, truth be told, we really want to spend a lot of time debating. Because when we look at the wrath or the judgment of God, the judgment of God here is being poured out upon the whole earth. It's being poured out upon everybody who walks in rebellion towards God. Now, um, if you're a believer, you don't seem to fit in this category, okay? Um, when we're talking about God's judgment upon the world, uh, you are uh, escaped from that judgment because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, right? So if you're being described as somebody who's in this category, if you're being described as somebody who's actually uh, being judged by God, well, then it would seem to uh, tell us one of two things. It would tell us that, number one, you're not one of God's children, which, uh, of course, we know that we are all God's children here, those of us that are, that are here that we've received Christ into our lives, or it could mean, uh, basically, that God lied about his promise to not judge us, right? And so it's one or the other. And so when we receive Christ in our lives, we know that the only kind of judgment that we're going to experience from the Lord is going to be a judgment that is not necessarily based on, uh, uh, not based on whether or not we've sinned, because we know that we're freed from that judgment for what Jesus has done for us, but we know that it's going to be based on uh, our, the motives of our works. You know what I mean? And so we know for a fact that we're not going to be facing the judgment of God that is upon us. Uh, or, or that's upon the earth here. We're not included in that, okay? And so uh, you, you got to keep that in mind, you guys. This is a very, 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 very important concept. It's an important principle. Um, so it does not fit here for Christians, at least the, 
those Christians that are before the rapture to be a part of this category. Okay, so you're absolved from this. This is another uh, another reminder of the fact that you are not going to be part of this type of judgment, right? And we should thank God that we're not going to be part of this judgment, right? Because the judgment that we're reading about here in the book of Revelation is a horrendous one. It's one that none of us want anything to do with. Believe me, uh, look, you don't want anything to do with this type of judgment. You, you really don't. Uh, this type of judgment is ugly. It's a nasty judgment, and it's a judgment that involves God coming against the whole world. And uh, we're not that, we don't fall in that category, right? We're going to be uh, in heaven watching all of this happen, but we're not going to be included in this category. We're not going to be a part of this. And this is, it's a very, very obvious thing. So uh, this is the wrath of God that's about to be uh, unleashed. And this represents these last uh, uh, sets of judgments that's going to be taking place, okay? So it says this, it says in verse two, and again, this is, uh, a, a symbolic representation, right? Because he says, as it were, right? So you got to remember that. So he says, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Now, again, there are some people that will read this and it will argue that this is talking about us, right? This is talking about the saints that have had victory over Satan. Well, again, that is just not the case, okay? What this is talking about and again, let's go over the chronology. Um, if you are here and you say, Lord Jesus, I accept you in my life and I accept you in my heart and I want to walk with you, um, you have been already raptured by the Lord, right? But there are a group of people that are left behind uh, that chose not to accept Christ in their life that at some point catch on to, oh man, I, uh, I really do want to accept Christ. I really do want to do the right thing. And these are the people that actually survived all of the judgments that have taken place so far, right? These are the people that have survived, uh, resisted. Uh, accepting the mark of the beast, okay? So we're talking about a completely different crowd. We're talking about those tribulation saints, right? Those saints that have actually survived the tribulation. And so uh, we're just, we're talking about a completely different category of people here. And this is something that uh, obviously should be noted. This is an important uh, thought process to, to, to note. By the way, um, I do want you to understand something. That if you are here and you are listening to me, maybe you're not here in this church, but you're listening to me on the radio or you're listening to me, you know, some kind of a recording or, or something like that. Maybe, uh, you're, you're hearing me on, on one of our, using one of our channels of ministry. Maybe you're watching me on the live stream and you think, you know what? I, I really could pass walking with the Lord. You know, it's not that big of a deal. I really don't need Jesus in my life. But when all of this goes down, then I, at least I know not to accept the mark of the beast. Well, that's a real stupid approach. Uh, forgive me for saying that. I don't mean to sound offensive and I don't mean to sound weird, but that's probably not the road that you want to go down, right? Because we know from what Thessalonians tells us that God himself is going to send delusion down, right? So if you're deceived enough to not uh, uh, accept Christ right now, what makes you think you're going to be strong enough not to accept the mark of the beast? You actually might be convinced that accepting the mark of the beast is the right thing. And guess what? Now you're guaranteed to go to hell. 
And so if you happen to be a part of that small percentage, the, the, you know, the minority, the extreme minority that chooses uh, not to accept the, the mark of the beast, well, then you're being talked about right here. Uh, but there's very few of those people that are going to survive. It's a very, 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 very small minority. And so don't gamble, right? You're, if you're hearing this right now, this is not one of these things that you really want to gamble with. You want to make sure that your walk with Christ is intact. You want to make sure that you are seeking him. You want to make sure that you're actually walking with him because if you're not, you are literally messing around with fire. And by the way, let me remind you, there isn't anything that needs to happen biblically in order for Christ to come back for his church. In order for the church to be raptured, there's absolutely nothing that needs to happen. And this is an important distinction that we need to make. It's something that you need to understand. And so um, you really don't want to wait. You really don't want to push yourself to be, uh, well, I'll just wait until, uh, you know, this whole thing comes up with the beast and so on and so forth. And then also, here's another thing to keep in mind. Um, the instant reward for not accepting the mark of the beast is what? Death. So you're not going to win, right? It, look, make the smart decision now, right? Say, Christ, I want to walk with you. Christ, I want to live for you. Christ, I want you to uh, be a part of my heart. I want to accept you. I want to let you into the door of my heart. And listen, you, then you get, it's, it's really the easy way at that point. At that point, you really, really don't have to worry about hell. You don't have to worry about a damnation from God. You don't have to worry about experiencing the earthly judgment of God that is going to take place. And, and truth be told, you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to be part of this extreme, and I'm going to use this word, extreme minority of survivors that's being spoken about, okay? And so um, if, uh, if you happen to survive all of that, which is very unlikely that you will, it's very likely that you're going to hell if you don't uh, make that decision to receive Christ right now. Uh, well, listen, um, this is talking about you, right? And, and he's describing these saints that are on this sea of glass and fire, so to speak, and they've got these, this harp. They've probably already died at this point. Um, and there is a uh, there's a picture here that's actually being drawn. And they said they have the harps of God. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. And so it is interesting. It talks about singing the song of Moses. And, you know... I, I, I don't, I'm not, a lot of people uh, speculate as into if there's any um, uh, real significance uh, to the phrase, sing the song of Moses. I know there has to be, otherwise, the, you know, that phrase would not be spoken of. And there's several different aspects that we can take uh, concerning this. One of the aspects that we can take is we can take the aspect of the heart of praise that Moses certainly had towards the Lord. It's certainly not one to be discounted. And it's very likely that this is uh, a reference to that. But there's another interesting aspect concerning the, uh, you know, the heart of Moses and the picture of Moses. And that is the fact that Moses did not walk in complete and total obedience to the Lord. And because he failed to walk in complete and total obedience to the Lord, he was prevented from being able to actually walk into the promised land. If you, if you know the picture of that, if you remember, God tells Moses that Moses is supposed to represent him accurately. Moses does not represent God accurately, if you remember. And because of Moses' failure to represent God accurately, because of the fact that Moses ended up striking the rock instead 
instead of speaking to the rock, God said, guess what? Now, Moses, you're not going to enter into the promised land. So now Moses got to see the promised land that could have been available to him, but he wasn't able to enter it and enter into it. And so there was a lack of completion in Moses's life. I think that's a fair statement to make. Now, when we talk about these saints, when we talk about these tribulation saints, these are the ones that, yes, of course, they were able to successfully reject the mark of the beast. They were successfully able to ditch the consequences of those that reject Jesus because they chose to accept Jesus by their actions. But they did not experience the fullness of everything that God had for them, right? That's the, that's the picture because of the lack of obedience that took place. And if you really think about it, we don't want to be like Moses, do we? We want to be people who will ex- get to experience the whole promised land when we get to see it, not just be able to see it, but we want to be able to enter into the promised land, right? And so these guys are singing the song of Moses, knowing full well that they are in a different category, knowing uh, full well that they're in a completely different place. And so, of course, being in this different place, these are the things that they end up saying. And I want you to notice this, right? They say, great and marvelous are God's works, right? They say, just and true are his ways. So this is an interesting uh, set of declarations. Let's look at the first set. They say this, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. First of all, they describe God as Lord God Almighty. In other words, he's the one who is who is almighty. He's all-powerful. He's the one. There is nothing more mighty than him. There is nothing more, more powerful than him. That seems to be the implication of what's actually being said. But notice this. Great and marvelous are thy works. Now, think that through. That the work of God, that the hand of God is great. And not only is it great, but it's marvelous. It brings marvel to us. In other words, we see God's hand moving. And when we see God's hand moving, yes, it's great. Of course it's great. It's something that is extreme, right? And and when we talk about uh, great, uh, think about it uh, as, you know, look at it from from the perspective of size for just a minute, right? If we were to compare sizes, right, average would be an ant. Okay, think about the size of an ant, a little tiny micro ant right great would be what a semi-truck semi-truck compared to an ant okay god's the semi-truck great are his works we walk around these little tiny ants you know and you know we're working right we're little working ants and we got these little tiny crumbs that we're picking up and everything is all great god is the uh, he's a semi-truck you guys get the idea in other words he is so far above and beyond the scope of anything that we could possibly imagine his works are so far greater they're so past and beyond anything that we could possibly dream up or anything that we could possibly configure in our minds that it's just so overwhelming the sheer size of the works of god are so significantly greater that we can't even begin to imagine how much more significant the works of god are and this is one of the uh the cries of moses this is one of the songs of moses and this is an appropriate uh a cry and an appropriate song to make because moses was one who did witness the great uh, and marvelous works of God. He was one who was able to witness the hand of God work in such a way that was so mighty, it was unbelievable. He watched the after effects and the, the existing effects of his people being in slavery for 400 years and being in bondage. And he saw how impossible it looked like for them to be able to be freed. He himself tried to free his people from slavery and bondage and he almost got himself, he almost got himself killed. 
He killed a, uh, an Egyptian slave driver type of a thing. And when he tried to go make peace amongst the Hebrews, all they did was accuse him. And he almost died as a result of it. He had to go into the wilderness for 40 years for God to pretty much make him uh, uh, learn to shut his mouth and really taught Moses how to stutter because Moses thought he was the man and God had to humble that man. And then God went back and did st- th- things with the nation of Israel that every single person in their mind could have never even able, could have never even been able to conceive could ever happen, right? Like, first of all, who could ever conceive if you were a slave in Egypt that you would actually be free from slavery? Being free from slavery was a dream that every single uh, Israelite had, but that dream, see- you know, really... Uh, 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 was a dream that really seemed like an impossibility. It was one of those dreams where you just thought, ah, that'll never happen. There's no way that that can take place. Kind of like what we go through every now and then. When, I don't know about you guys, but we, I've had daydreams in the past. I'm sure some of you have had dream, uh, you know, daydreams like this where you go back and you think about, you just literally think about for, for even if it's for a few minutes, you have these thoughts about, you know, what would it look like if you won a hundred million dollars, right? Have you, any of you ever gone through that list? Like, what would I do if I, a hundred million seems to be the number, right? And so in my mind I already know what I would do well I wouldn't give ten dollars or ten million dollars to the church I'd be a little extra generous and I'd give 20 million dollars to the church you know and then and then that just leaves me with 80 million dollars to live by and then these are the things that I would do I would pay off all my relatives house uh, off and then I would do this and then I would do that and then I would go buy this and then I would go build that and then you you, you think about all the different things that you do but they look and feel and seem like a pipe dream, right? Oh, that'll never happen, but it's kind of fun to dream. And this is what the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, felt like as it, as it related to the idea of being uh, released from slavery, uh, no longer being a slave. The idea of no longer being a slave was exactly like that. The idea of no longer being inbound to slavery was exactly like that dream of, of having $100 million. It's just impossible. It's one of those things that would never take place, but it's nice to dream a little dream, if you know what I mean, right? It's just a little bit of a pipe dream, but you know, we know that it's not going to happen, but then God ends up making that happen. And of course, every single Israelite, including Moses understood how powerful and significant it was that God did what he did. And so they recognized that God's works were that of great and marvelous. He did it was like, wow, it's the kind of thing I could never imagine God doing. That is so great. God is so great and his works are marvelous. They bring marvel to me. I mean, you look at it and you think, wow, he could have, I never would have imagined God doing this. It was, it's just a pipe dream. It's always been a little pipe dream. It's always been one of these things that you, you think could, you know, possibly happen. You would imagine it in your mind and then God does it. Not only does he does it, but he does it in a way that's far more better than anything that you can imagine. I mean, think about it. Look, it's not just enough to be freed from slavery. I mean, if you're living in that time and you're freed from slavery, that would have been a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. Oh my gosh, we were freed from slavery. We're no longer slaves to the Egyptians. This is cool. But being freed from slavery, you would still have this thought in the back of your mind thinking, what if my slave owners come for me? You'd have that thought. I think I would have that thought. I think if I broke from slavery, if it was like the literal impossible task of me being broken or freed from slavery, there'd always be a part of me that says, what if the Egyptians pursue me? What if they come after me? I mean, to think about the idea that they would come after me and, and seek to destroy me, man, I'd be so scared. So God may have given me my desire and now I'm free as a slave, but now being free as a slave, I, in the back of my mind, I'm always going to be thinking about for the rest of my life, I'm going to be thinking about the Egyptians coming after me. But that's what I would expect. 
So God says, okay, well, I'm going to do something you didn't expect. I'm going to not only free you from slavery to the Egyptians, but guess what? I'm now going to deal with the Egyptians so that they are broken down, so that they no longer have even the militaristic force to be able to pursue you again. Who would have ever thought that God would have done it this way? Who would have ever thought that God would have ended up where these guys allowed the Israelites to be blocked into the, to the, to the, uh, to the Red Sea? Right where they get to the Red Sea, and then Moses splits open the Red Sea, which that in and of itself is a miracle. Well, God splits open the Red Sea, right? And the nation walks through. I mean, could you imagine the awe and the wonder of just that very thing beginning to take place? And then Pharaoh's army being destroyed as they pursued them. And could you imagine what it would have been like as a, as a, uh, literally as a slave who used to be owned by these Egyptians to just watch the ocean close down upon all of the Pharaoh's army and to think, wow, they're never going to mess with us again. That is what you call your expectation is right here. And God being so above far above and beyond the expectation that you're blown away, that you look at that and you go, Whoa, that's marvelous. Like that's extreme. Like that's crazy. How can you imagine anything like that happening? And uh, I recently, again, uh, they've rebirthed this stupid theory, which I think it is. It's it's dumb, but there's this new theory going around. It's not new. It's the same old kind of garbage. Where um, now there's this view or there's this belief that you know, well, the the, the Red Sea really wasn't that deep. It was it was maybe only about two inches tall. You know, how some of you heard this theory. You know. Well, it was two inches tall, and any good wind coming from the right direction, hitting against this certain area, could have literally split open the, the, the Dead Sea. And it would have been two inches, and it, there could have been a wind that would, would have been long enough and hard enough to sustain the Dead Sea to where, you know, they could walk through the two inches. Well, first of all, that just seems stupid, because if the Dead Sea was only two inches tall, well, then two inches would not have kept the nation of Israel from walking across it. That just seems kind of foolish, right? They would not look at a two-inch piece of water and go, oh my God, I'm so scared to cross. We're going to die. The Egyptians are pursuing us. If the Egyptians were pursuing me, and only two inches of water was keeping me from uh, from uh, getting away from the Egyptians, I would walk through two inches of water. It would not be a big deal, right? Kind of a dumb theory. But here's the thing. If you adhere to that and you think, well, no, that's the way it has to be because that's the scientific explanation, then I would say, great, you indeed as the scientist who provide a scientific explanation have more faith in God than I ever could. Well, what do you mean I have more faith in God than I ever could? I mean, that, that just seems crazy. I mean, I'm just giving you a scientific explanation. Yeah, well, you have bigger faith in God because that means God did a greater miracle. Well, what do you mean? Well, we have evidence of the fact that there were ruins. We know, we know that the Egyptians died there in the Dead Sea. It's not like something that's a debated issue. But if that's the case, and what you're saying is absolutely right, and, <clears throat> and it's correct, and there was only two inches of water there, and God did this not-so-great miracle of splitting open the Dead Sea, which was only two inches. Anybody could have blown air on there and, and split the Dead Sea. Hey, fine, I'll concede to that. But you know what that means? That means God did a greater miracle than you could possibly imagine. Well, why? What do you mean he did a greater miracle? Because that means God destroyed a fierce, crazy, psycho, angry army with only two inches of water, right? So take your, take your pick, right? Either way, God's, word, uh, or God's works are mighty. Either way, God's works are marvelous. There's just no other way to put it, right? The, the, the power of God is still insane in ways that you could not even imagine. And so 
This would have been one of these uh, cries out to the Lord. And I, and I bring all of this up because, you know, Moses got to see the works of God being mighty. Moses got to see the works of God uh, being marvelous, being great and marvelous. He got to see that. But, you know, interestingly enough, he never got to experience the fullness of God's promises, just like these tribulation saints. These tribulation saints, you know, if they got to experience the fullness of God's promises, they would have already been raptured, right, beforehand. But... They're singing out the song that Moses would sing. And of course, the words that they're saying are absolutely true because they're seeing God Almighty that has actually spared them, right? And look at this. Just and true are thy ways, uh, thou king of saints. Now, the phrase thou king of saints, we don't really have to get into. The idea, the implication is that they're saying that God is my king and that's not a difficult thing to, uh, to come to. But notice what the, what the statement is here. The statement is uh, just and true are thy ways. In other words, your ways are just and your ways are true. The, uh, the accuracy of such a statement, the power of such a statement is significant. Think this through for a minute. It, it, look, let's say you survive the tribulation and let's say all of these things kind of still go in your favor and, and you've been able to witness the, the idea of, uh, or you've been able to witness the, uh, the, the grace of God in your life in that you're not dead. You have not experienced a portion or any of the judgment that, that God has bestowed upon the whole earth and you've watched judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment, but yet you seem to be one that's spared. You know, the, the, my inclination, my internal inclination would be God is an unjust God because of all the things that he's doing. That's what happens when people get angry at God. When people get angry at God, that's the first thing they lean on. Oh, he's unjust. Oh, he's an awful God. Well, these people are saying, you know what? True and just are your ways. You're not fake news, God, right? You don't lie about the things that you do. What you're doing is fair. What you're doing is equitable. You are true and you are just. And, and there is no question concerning the ways of God. There is no question concerning the, the paths that God chooses to take or the paths that God chooses for us to walk through. In other words, God is true. God is just. There's no other way around it. In other words, you're justified in everything that you do and nobody can blame you for what you're doing. As a matter of fact, your acts and your works are above and beyond that which is fair. I think that anybody who has a true realization of who God is, anybody who experiences God at any level, who truly understands who God is, are going to come to that conclusion that God is true. They're going to understand that God is true. They're going to understand that God is just. It's just one of a very, uh, it's a very simple thing. It is interesting when you talk to people who call themselves atheists, who are liars because they really aren't atheists. Matter of fact, they never tell the truth when they call themselves atheists. There isn't anything true about that statement when they say that they're an atheist. And you can tell right away because they call themselves atheists and the first thing that they do when they make an argument against God is they argue that God is unjust and they make an argument that God's a liar. That's one of the very first things that they say. Well, if you believe that there is no God, then how in the world can you make an argument that God is unjust and he's a liar? He doesn't exist, so why are you so mad at him? How can you be mad at something that you think doesn't exist? You're a liar and you're inconsistent, right? If if you're spending that much energy being mad at a God, well, that must mean that There has to be a God for you to be mad at, right? But what you don't understand, what you don't realize, what you don't recognize is that God is indeed just. And God is indeed true. And anybody that has any real interaction with the true and living God, anybody who walks with the true and living God and understands the true and living God will all say the same thing. They will all say that God is a just God. 
And they're all going to say that God's a true God. He doesn't lie. He doesn't, uh, you know, uh, walk away from his precepts. He doesn't say, hey, I told you this, but ha, psych, I was just kidding. He doesn't do that kind of thing, right? He's, his word is true. He doesn't stray away from any of those things. So, true are, thy, true are thy ways, thy king of saints, and then art thou king of saints. So look what he says in verse 4. It says, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art holy, for all the nations shall come and worship thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. In other words, you know what? Who's going to ever come up to you and not fear you? When people see you, when people experience you, no doubt they're going to fear you, Right? I hear preachers oftentimes, maybe they're on the radio, they're on TV, and they, they give some account of their experience with God. Oh, yeah, God appeared to me the other day while I was shaving, you know? And I was just shaving, and the Lord appeared to me. And, and, and I heard someone talk, talk this way recently, and every now and then they share the same kind of story. Well, you know, I was shaving, and the Lord appeared to me, and I'm like, hey, God, how you doing? And, and we kind of had this conversation. Well, I know that guy's a liar. Either that guy's a liar or he's completely delusional and he, he thinks he had some experience with God when he had experience with the you know, crazy mushrooms on his bad pizza. You know what I mean? Because in reality, if I, meet, if I have an encounter with God, the one, thing, the one thing that I know is going to be an immediate motion, uh, emotion is my fear of God. I am going to fear God with everything in me. In other words, there's going to be a realization that I am in the midst of somebody almighty, Right? Somebody that you just don't mess with. Like you, you, you experience his presence and you know, oh man, I'm in the midst of somebody who is far greater than me and I ain't going to mess around. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, kind of like the picture that I develop when, I, when you're in grade school. And, and every one of us have had this happen to us. But I remember when I was in grade school, one of my favorite things that would happen, and when we uh, only had a few opportunities to make this happen for some of our friends, is we would see a teacher that we all hated that would be very, in very close proximity to us, right? And if the timing was right, we would wait until the teacher got behind one of my friends, right? And then we would egg on my friend to talk all kinds of smack about the teacher, right? You know, what do you think? Oh, yeah, that teacher's a blah, 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 blah. I beat that teacher up right now, five, blah, blah. and then they just curse them up, and they say all kinds of crazy things, and they say all kinds of wild things, and they just curse, and they talk on, and they talk on, and then we wait until eventually they realize that the teacher was standing behind them, hearing the whole thing, and when they turn around, you can see their whole, just their whole mannerism completely change. They go from talking smack, I'll beat them up right now, to and they're scared, and then they go from, you know, talking smack to apologizing, you know, I'm so sorry, and I, I didn't mean for you to, da, da, da. And just their whole attitude changes, right? Well, that's the way it is when we encounter the true and living God, right? You encounter the true and living God. You can talk all the smack you want, but when you see him, when you experience him, when you understand him, when you begin to, uh, when you begin to uh, behold who he is, let me tell you something. You're going to have a very healthy fear of God, right? So this is why, and this is an important thought process, and it's one that we need to grasp and understand and realize and recognize. This is why... I don't accept it when people tell me that they have all these encounters with God where God appeared to them and then in God appearing to them, they just had this casual conversation with God. Anybody that says that God appeared to them and they have a casual conversation with God, they didn't, re they really haven't had a conversation with God because the instant reaction when you have a, an encounter with God is absolute, total and complete fear. 
When I talk about fear, I'm not talking about the kind of fear where you're, where you're just outright scared, but it's the kind of fear that says, I am aware of who it is that I'm in front of. And when you become aware of who it is that you're in front of, let me tell you something, your mannerisms, your attitude, your behavior, everything changes. That's why you get this rhetorical question that says, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? In other words, the very moment you hear or you experience, you see, you watch who God is when you come into his presence, the very moment is when you you develop that healthy respect and notice it it says and glorify thee and and that that's true i mean if you even take the pagans when they die even when the pagans die and they're in front of god on judgment day right the bible tells it the bible says every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that jesus christ is lord so everybody's gonna gonna bow everybody's tongue is going to confess because when they see and experience the true and living god when they know who he is they're not only going to fear him by default they're not only going to realize oh my gosh look at who i'm standing in front of but at the same time you know what they're going to glorify god and they're going to do it whether or not they wanted to back in the day because how can you help to not glorify god when you see him and experience what he is you're going your tone is going to change because when you develop a healthy respect for that which you are looking at hey you can't help but your for your tone to also change right so these are the types of things that you have to understand these are the types of things that we have to to realize that when people experience god that's what's going to go on so i don't ever accept these people that have these casual stories of their encounters with God. Oh, I had this encounter with God and, and he played baseball with me and so on and so forth. And we ran through the forest and all that kind of stuff. Uh, whatever. Your book's worthless. I'm not going to pay attention to you. You're a liar. That's not what the Bible says happens when people have an encounter with the true and living God. So um, notice the, the statement here, thou art holy for all the nations shall come up and worship before thee for thy judgments are made manifest. And, and again, the, the idea here is that when you see God, when you experience God, you cannot help but to actually speak the truth concerning God. In other words, all the things that are obvious about God are going to come out immediately, right away. It's not, there's not even going to be a question in your mind about the characteristics and who God is because it's just going to be a very obvious thing. You're going to be able to describe it right away, right? Look at verse 5. It says, and after that, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the uh, testimony in heaven was open. By the way, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony was open. When we talk about the idea of of the tabernacle in heaven, it's not like the earthly tabernacle. It's not modeled after the earthly tabernacle. I actually think the earthly tabernacle was modeled after that which is in heaven. And so we're talking about a completely different infrastructure here, but we are talking about uh, you know this, this area in which God is to be worshipped. Look at this in verse 6. It says, And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven... Seven plagues clothed in pure and white liner and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. So here we go. The angels are coming out. The angels that, of course, that are going to pour out these um, uh, these bowls or these saucers of God's wrath here. And it says, and one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. By the way, I don't agree with the translation vials here in the King James. I actually think that that's not a good translation. I actually think it's a bad translation because the idea here, we're not talking about vials like jugs uh, where you're pouring out wrath. We're talking about like saucers, basically, like a, um, a, a shallow type of a saucer. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean the depth of God's judgment is, is shallow? No, it does not mean that. But the implication is, is it's the type of thing that you just can't set down. In other words, it's a type of thing that it's so shallow that whatever it's containing is going to inevitably be poured over. 
You follow what I'm saying? In other words, it's not like something that, you know, uh, if you move around, there's a chance that everything within it is going to be contained. The idea is if you move it around, everything that w- that's within it cannot be contained. The idea here is that this, this, these are the judgments of God that are going to be very final, right? They're going to happen. There is, no, uh, uh, there is no ifs, ands, buts about it. There's no way that these judgments are going to be held back. In other words, these judgments are going to be poured out, and they're going to be poured out in great wrath and with great finality. And that's the idea. And that's why I think the idea of vials doesn't really fit here, because the idea of vials uh, would imply that you could carry around these things and not have them leak at all. But when we're talking about the, the idea of saucers, as, as probably that's probably the, I don't know, probably the closer translation. The idea is, is even if there's a little bit of movement, the contents of those saucers are going to come out. And the idea here is that God is basically saying, that's it. This is final. My judgment is about to be poured out. And it's kind of a heavy uh, picture that's given here. It says, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Now that's kind of a heavy statement. And, and basically what that means is that um, uh, business will not uh, be continued as usual until God pours out his final judgments. Now, why is that the case? I mean, you would think in your mind that, that you know, God would maybe show his grace and, and somehow, you know, he would change his mind and say, okay, let's just move on. I've done enough to the earth and the people on earth have suffered and so on and so forth. Well, the idea here and, and the picture that we get is that this is something that has already been pre-decreed by God. It's something that God already knew was coming. He saw it coming. Of course, we know that because if, if he didn't, he wouldn't have told us this from 2,000 years ago. You know, he wouldn't have allowed this message to be written from this, from this far long ago. But it is interesting. See, when you think about this, this really describes, this really depicts the finality of God's plan. In other words, God planned for this to be this way. It's not something that can be ignored. It's a picture that we get of these of these uh, vials that need to be poured out. At least that's a King Germ- the King James way of putting it. But these saucers that need to be poured out and that, and that business cannot commence as usual in heaven until this is done. In other words, God's judgment must be true and it must be complete and it must be whole. And this is what God chooses to do. And there is a picture that we should get about this from God. And, and there's a lot of things we can learn from the judgment of God. And what we learn from the judgment of God is that God is completely, he is complete and he's thorough. He does not leave any... Uh, anything behind. He does not leave any loose uh, road, nothing like that. God is the one who is complete and he is thorough in everything that he does. And, and truth be told, when we think about exactly what he's doing here in Revelation, this is another picture yet of the completeness and the thoroughness and the justness and the righteousness and every aspect of God, that God is perfect in his ways and the judgments that we're about to see begin to be poured out are all relative to the fact that God is perfect and God is righteous in all of his ways and God is actually just in everything that he does. That's a pretty amazing picture when you think about it. And, and it's interesting. People ask me all the time, well, James, why don't you just skip over the, pack, the, the, you know, the passages that deal with the judgment of God and just really deal with the issues that seem to be more relevant? And I always say this. There's nothing more relevant than going over depictions of the judgment of God. Why? Because through the judgment of God, we can learn so much about God, can't we? Right? You can learn a lot about somebody based on how they discipline their children. 
You can learn a lot about somebody based on how uh, they execute judgment. You can learn a lot about somebody. You can learn a lot about their character based on the decisions that they make regarding interactions that they have with other people and, and with other situations. And this is the exact same picture that I'm trying to draw for you guys. That God, when we learn about God, when we read about the judgments of God, we can learn so much more about him. And one of the things that we learn about him here, one of the pictures that we, that we begin to draw concerning God is we begin to realize just how amazingly thorough and complete God is. And if we understand that he's that thorough and complete, you've got to know he'll be thorough and complete in your life. No coincidence that God says that God is, uh, that the Bible tells us that God is the author and the finisher of our faith, right? Not only did he author our faith, not only did he start it and create the, the road for us to walk down it, but he's also going to be the one that's going to finish it. He's going to be the one that's going to, that he's literally going to, to allow it to come to completion because he's that kind of a God. And if you're in that place right now in your life where you're wondering whether or not, you know, this is going to happen or that's going to happen, or maybe you, you've got some open-ended questions that you have going on right now with the Lord, just know this, God is is in the business of completing that which he finishes, uh, finishing that which he starts. He's in the business of completing that which he commences. This is the way God works. And God is never, ever, 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 ever void of just uh, behavior. Or he's never void of righteous behavior. He's always fair and just and complete. As a matter of fact, let me take it a step further. He's merciful. So even when you know that you deserve the judgment of God, you can rest in the fact that God is going to cut you some slack because he loves you and because he cares about you and because he's given you his son to make provision for the fact that you could be going to hell, but you're not going to hell anymore. Isn't that amazing? This is the power of God. This is the power of his word. And in a little prelude like this, just a very small prelude, eight verses, we can learn that much. Isn't that amazing, guys? The, the message that God brings us as we jump into his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And this is good stuff, Lord, as we continue to learn uh, concerning your actions and your judgment and the things that you do, Lord, and all the things that you're wanting to do and continuing to do in our lives. Lord, you're so good to us, Lord. You're so faithful to us. And Lord, you love us with a whole and complete and a faithful love, Lord. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you are just. We thank you that you are righteous. We thank you that you're good. And we thank you, Lord, that you are, are there, Lord, wanting to do a complete work in our lives and our hearts. So, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you. Go before us now. Fill us with your spirit. Keep us seeking you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.